I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the Word of the Lord as we find it in the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 for you. And as I do so, I remind you that what we are about to hear is the Word of the living God. And so may we hear it and receive it and believe it with great gladness as we hear it read this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge before you that your testimonies are wonderful, and so our souls long to keep them. Indeed, Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so we metaphorically this morning open our mouths and pant because we long for your word. So turn to us, we ask, and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. Make your face to shine upon your servants this morning and teach us your statutes now, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, according to the church calendar, we find ourselves in the third Sunday of the season of Advent. And if you were here last Sunday, you recall that we very simply defined Advent as coming and so what we are observing in the season of Advent, or what we should be reminded of, is that the people of God, whether under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, have always been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Under the Old Covenant, they were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah, which happened when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and lived the life we failed to, died on the cross for our sins, 
rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. That was the first advent or coming of Christ. And now we, as New Covenant believers, live in light of that first coming of the Messiah, and we are now longing for His second coming, as He promised He would do, when He will come, not as a child who is born or a lamb to be sacrificed, but a king who will destroy all of His enemies, summarily, absolutely, and establish his kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him forever and ever. We are waiting for that great day. And so what the season of Advent reminds us of is that we're a people who are waiting, whether under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, for the coming of our promised Messiah. Now here's the question. Why are we those kind of people? Why are we a people who can be defined as waiting for someone outside of us our triune God, to come and save us. And the reality is, is that that is our only hope. (laughs) We have no hope in ourselves. We cannot put our hope in the kingdoms of man or in politicians. Our hope must be in our triune God doing that for us, which we are incapable of doing for ourselves. Because here's the thing, ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, disobeying God's word, We are incapable now, unable to obey his word and to put ourselves in a right standing with him or set the world aright. We are incapable of doing that. And so if we place our hope in ourselves or in anything in this world, it will fail us. And so our eyes are to be drawn to our triune God who alone can save us and who alone can redeem us and who alone can make all things new. That's what we're waiting for, and that's why we're waiting for it. And what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 shows us is what God promised back in the Old Covenant to do in order to save us. And this passage, as we'll very clearly see, was meant to foster and encourage hope in the original audience that received this prophecy. And so my hope this morning is that we too will be encouraged as New Covenant believers waiting for the second coming of our Messiah. But here's what Isaiah 9 teaches us. It teaches us what God promises back in the Old Covenant, what he will do to save us. And so I want this text to show that to us by answering two important questions. This text answers two important questions for us. First of all, it answers the question, what will God do? What will God do to save us? And we'll see that in verses 1 through 5. We'll see everything that he's done to reconcile us to himself and set things right in the world. Second of all, we'll ask the important question and see it answered by this text, how God will do it. How will God bring these things that he says he's going to bring about? How will he do it? And we'll see that very clearly in verses 6 and 7. And again, my hope and prayer is that as we see this unfold, that we too would be encouraged not to hope in ourselves or any man or anyone outside of us, Save the triune God. He alone can save us, and so he alone is to be our hope. So let's look first then at how verses 1 through 5 answer the question, what will God do? And actually, before I do that, let me give you a little bit of context for where we are in the book of Isaiah. I'm not going to try to give you an overview of the first eight chapters because that would take far too long. But just enough information so you understand the context that this prophecy comes to God's people in. Judah is under the leadership of King Ahaz. 
And King Ahaz has disobeyed God, the God of Israel, who's graciously entered into a covenant with his people. And God has said, I will deliver you from your enemies. Now obey me and obey my word. And King Ahaz has these enemies, and he's not listening to the word of God. He's turning to his own political machinations, his own political power and manipulation to work things out. And so God says, since you've turned away from me, King Ahaz, and since many in Judah have turned away from me, I am going to bring punishment upon you. And that punishment is going to look like the Assyrian army descending upon you and crushing you. And so the people then, as a result, are in darkness. Look at the very end of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They're spiritually in darkness. They're politically in darkness. They're economically in darkness. Every way they can possibly be described, they are in darkness. And then God comes and says, but here's what I'm going to do. And God is going to do three things we're going to see here in verses 1 through 5. Let's walk through those. First of all, he says, I'm going to shine light in the darkness. Again, this is the northernmost part of the promised land, Zebulun and Naphtali. And what has happened in 733 BC is the Assyrian army conquered it, took the people into captivity. And so now they're in gloom. They're in anguish. They're sad. They've seen their young men slaughtered before them. And yet they deserve this for their sin and rebellion against their covenant God, the God of Israel. And yet what God says is, I'm going to give you hope. And who's he giving hope to? He's giving hope to the remnant within Judah. The remnant like Isaiah, who are still hoping in the Lord, who are still obeying his word, who are still looking to him. And so in the midst of this anguish and gloom, the Lord says, you still have hope, my people. The elect whom I have kept for myself, whose faith I sustain, you will have hope. And what is that hope? That hope is that light will shine in the darkness. And so look at verse 1 with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is the good news. Chapter 8 ended on bad news. Here's the good news. It's kind of like in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 where Paul is laying out for the Ephesians, you've rebelled against God. You're deserving of his wrath. You're children of wrath by nature in Adam. But then he gets to those glorious two words in chapter 2 verse 4. But God. Even though this is what you deserve, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he will redeem us in Christ. And this is like the Old Testament equivalent of that. The Old Covenant equivalent. Though you deserve punishment, I will make light shine in the darkness. I will be gracious to you. Let us continue to read verse 1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the Assyrian army conquering them. But in the latter time, he's saying in a future time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so the Lord's saying, though you have experienced shame and dishonor, I will down the road Zebulun and Naphtali this northern part of the promised land, I will show you a great honor. Light will shine where there is darkness, and I will remove your anguish and your gloom. And here's the incredible thing. 
the New Testament actually shows us how this promise is fulfilled. And so I want you to see this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and I want to read for you verses 12 through 17. Jesus has just begun his public ministry, and verse 12 tells us, Now when he, that being Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In what territory? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now here's verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how is this prophecy fulfilled? The dishonor that Zebulun and Naphtali experienced by being crushed by the Assyrians for their spiritual darkness is now being replaced with the honor of Jesus in the beginning of his public ministry, first showing up and preaching the good news of his kingdom in these regions. Good news of what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will do through the Son so that they might be reconciled to him, so that they might be brought out of their spiritual darkness, spiritually speaking, that their eyes might be opened and they might be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, this is how this good news is fulfilled. This promise is fulfilled in Jesus because he is the light of the world. That's what he says about himself in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the first thing that we see that God says he'll do is he will make light shine in the darkness. And our hearts leap at that truth, don't they? Because isn't that what's happened to us in the midst of our spiritual death and darkness? When we had no ability to respond to the Lord, the Spirit regenerated our hearts, and we have beheld the glory of the Son of God when the good news was preached to us. And so this is the first thing that God promises that he will do. He will bring light into the darkness. Second of all, in verse 3, turn back to Isaiah chapter 9, we'll see that he will multiply a joyful nation. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Here's another thing that God will do. He will multiply a nation. Now, when you hear that language, if you are a Jew or if you are here this morning and really know your Bible well, that should remind you of a promise that God made in the Old Covenant. What's the promise? The promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make of you a great nation. Remember the Lord takes him outside Try to count the stars in the sky, Abraham. Can you do it? No, I can't. That's how great your offspring will be. I will make you a great nation, and you will be a blessing to the nations. And you can imagine what a comfort it is for the people of God to hear this promise restated for them in this context. Because God has already said through his prophet Isaiah earlier in the book that God is going to whittle down the number of his people so that they're very small. 
And so naturally, the people of God are going to be seeing that saying, but what about the promise to Abraham? What about the promise to make us, Israel, a great nation? Has God's promise failed? And God says, no, I will bring this about. And I probably should have mentioned this earlier as we started the sermon. But one of the things that Hebrew scholars pointed out to me as I read them in verses 1 through 7, and this is absolutely astounding, in the Hebrew, it's written in the present tense. It's written as if it is already happening, though Isaiah is talking about something in the future. Why? Because when God promises something, since he cannot lie, it will come about. And since God is all-powerful, no one can thwart his will, all his purposes, according to his eternal decree, he will bring about. And so Isaiah presents these to God's people as if they have already happened. Absolutely incredible. And so God's people are hearing, the promise to Abraham will be kept. You have multiplied the nation. And so because the nation's being multiplied, their joy is increased. And then Isaiah goes on to say what it will be like, their joy. Look at the second half of verse 3. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now in an agrarian society, your family's future depends on a good crop coming in. And so if you have a bad crop, a bad harvest, guess how you're going to spend your winter? Watching your family members get sick at best and at worst die around you. And so when the harvest comes in, when you have a good crop, your heart rejoices because the Lord has seen you and your family through another year. And the Lord says, how you rejoice when the harvest comes in, when you see me multiply this nation, your joy is going to be like that. Or look at the very end of verse 3. Your joy will be like the gladness when they divide the spoil. Armies in ancient times, when they went against other armies, when they defeated them, one of the things that they would do as sort of a celebration is they would go and they would pick up the spoils of war. I'm going to take your sword. I'm going to take your armor. I'm going to take this jewelry off of you. I'm going to go ransack your tent in the camp. And the people did this throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of the Lord has given us victory over our enemies. And the Lord says, the way that you rejoice when you defeat another army, that's how you're going to rejoice when you see me multiply the nation and keep my promise to Abraham. And again, we see this fulfilled by Jesus, don't we? Because Jesus is the true Israel. Israel failed to do everything that God commanded them to do. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills all righteousness. He's the true son of God that Israel failed to be. He is the true Israel. And so now the way that the nation is multiplied is not by people being brought into the nation state of Israel. No, the nation is multiplied. Israel is multiplied by Jew and Gentile alike being brought into saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you are united to him by grace through faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are now a part of true Israel. And so how are we seeing the nation multiplied in the new covenant? When the gospel's going out to the ends of the earth and the Gentiles are believing, coming in numbers upon numbers. What's happening? The Lord is multiplying the nation. And we see that happen even today, don't we? As we send out missionaries and they proclaim the gospel to people groups who've never heard it, we are seeing the promise kept to Abraham that the nation is multiplying and being made great and even Gentiles are being brought into true Israel. So we see that light will shine in the darkness. That's what God promises he'll do. He'll multiply a joyful nation. And then the third thing he promises he'll do 
is he will defeat the enemies of God's people. Look at verses 4 through 5 with me. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now again, if you're an Old Testament Jew hearing this prophecy from Isaiah, he's using language here intentionally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to draw the Israelite imagination back to a very important pivotal time in their history. Their minds are to go back to the time when they were in captivity, enslaved to the nation of the Egyptians. When Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt, they started to grow in great number, and the Egyptians said, they're going to overtake our kingdom, so let's enslave them, and that way we'll keep them in check. And so it's described here very vividly, the yoke of his burden. They had this yoke of slavery, the weight of which they had to carry under their taskmasters. And it was a heavy yoke. It was a burdensome yoke. And the staff for his shoulder, it was like this staff was placed upon their shoulders and they had to carry heavy buckets or bricks. And they're bowed down low under the weight of the Egyptian government and their oppression. And the rod of his oppressor, this is a picture or imagery of the fact that their slave drivers would have whips to keep driving them on and on to work to the point of exhaustion till some of them died. And they had rods with which they would beat them if they stopped working or if they rebelled in any way, shape, or form. And so here is what the Lord is saying. Just like I delivered Israel by the hand of Moses, wonderfully, gloriously, right? This is the great redemptive event of the old covenant. I'm going to do the same thing again. And how is he going to do it? Look at the very end of verse 4. He says, you have broken the yoke. You have broken the staff. You have broken the rod of their oppressors. And how has he done that? As on the day of Midian. Here's another test. How well do you know your Old Testament? Anybody know what happened on the day of Midian? Gideon, from this insignificant tribe in Israel, is called by God to raise up an army and go against the Midianites. This is in Judges chapter 7. And Gideon's able to raise up an army of about 30,000. And so I can imagine Gideon's feeling pretty confident. Yeah, let's, let's do this, Midianites. And then what happens? The Lord says, no, 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 that's too big of an army. If you go against them with that strong kind of number and you defeat them, you're going to think it's because you did it. And the Midianites are going to think it's because you're such a great nation. And so what happens? The Lord whittles the army down from 30,000 to 10,000 to 300. And what's the battle strategy? Do you remember? Don't go in there with your swords drawn, your spears and shields. No, go in with a trumpet, go in with a clay jar, and go in with a torch. Surround the army at night, break the clay jar, blow the trumpet, raise your torch, and I will defeat the Midianites. So they do that, and guess what? Gideon and his men don't even have to fight, because the Lord turns the army of the Midianites on themselves, and in the confusion, they slaughter each other and then run out of the camp so that the Israelites can just go in and gather up the spoils of war. This is how the Lord defeats his enemies. He doesn't do it in pomp and circumstance, power and might from a human standpoint. He does it to show human weakness so that, that his power is made clear, that I'm the one who has done it, not you. And it's a decisive victory because look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of the tools of war 
will be burned in the fire. All of the tools of wars that your enemies have will be burned in the fire so that they will be utterly defeated and not able to battle against you again. And brothers and sisters, again, we see this fulfilled in the new covenant by Jesus, don't we? Because Jesus' greatest victory actually looks like a defeat, doesn't it? From a human standpoint, the Son of God hung up on a cross, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And it's so clear in the new covenant, the disciples were expecting something else. That in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, some of them are questioning whether Jesus is even the Messiah. We thought he was the one. And then he gets nailed to a tree. They tell Jesus that, not recognizing him on the road to Emmaus. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. What seems like a defeat is actually a victory. Jesus conquers the flesh, the world, and the devil. All of our enemies absorbing the wrath of God by dying on the cross. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 makes this abundantly clear. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. The author of the book of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children, that's us, the people of God, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He assumed a human nature. Why? So that through death, by dying, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He's brought his enemies into open shame by dying on the cross and then raising from the dead, absorbing the wrath that we deserved in our place. And so this is the greatest victory ever, but from a human standpoint, even those who are closest to Jesus, it looks like utter defeat. And this is how God works. This is how he will defeat his enemies. And so do we see what God promises to do? He promises to bring light where there's darkness. He's done that in his son. He promises to fulfill the promise made to Abraham to multiply a joyful nation. Again, he's done that in his son. And he will utterly destroy the enemies of God's people, which Jesus has done decisively at the cross. And we will see fully and finally when he comes back again. But here's the second question that naturally follows. How will God do this? Now, I understand it's somewhat anticlimactic because I've already tipped my hat to the fact that it's through Jesus. But we're given a little bit more information than that in verses 6 and 7. So let's look then at how this text answers the question, how will God bring these things about as we look at verses 6 and 7? Look at the first half of verse 6 with me. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, again, this seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? Not because I've already told you about Jesus, but it doesn't have like a ring to it really, right? You're expecting, who's going to be able to carry all of this out? You're expecting some like warrior king, right? With this big old giant sword slung across his back and he's got a crown on his head and he's going to establish his people militarily, economically, politically. This is the kind of Messiah actually everybody was expecting when Jesus showed up. His own disciples were. And yet, how does Isaiah say that the Lord is going to bring this about? Oh yeah, a child's going to be born. <sighs> really? That sounds pretty lame. What's a child going to do? Well, it only sounds lame if you don't already remember what Isaiah has said about this coming Messiah. Look back with me at Isaiah chapter 7. Just turn a page or two. Looking at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What will the sign be? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name 
Emmanuel. Now, there's two things that are really unique about this child then, right? First of all, he's born of a virgin. I'm not going to go into it, but that's not the normal course of things, people. So this is a miraculous child. It is a miraculous birth that his mother has known no one, and yet she is bearing this child. But more amazingly, secondly, what is the name of this child? Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 1.23 what Emmanuel means. What does it mean? God with us. This child who is born is not just going to be, look back at Isaiah 9 and verse 6, he's not just going to be a son, he's going to be the son, the son of God. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, one person with two natures. God is coming to dwell among us in this child who was born, this son who is given because it is the very son of God. He is the one who will assume flesh, assume a human nature and dwell with us. He is the one who will bring these things about. That's why Jesus says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's the one who will take the government upon his shoulders so that it won't be bearing down on the backs of his people. Instead, what does Jesus say? I'm going to give you a light yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light because he bears it for us. And so this is the one who is promised. This is the one who will bring these things about when the virgin Mary gives birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is the one that the old covenant saints were waiting for and that we under the new covenant are waiting for as well to come a second time. But then Isaiah goes on and describes by assigning certain titles to this child who's born, this son who is given. And it tells us both who Jesus is in his person. He's glorious in his person, as we'll see. And we also see who he is for us as our mediator. Who he is for us in representing us before God. So let's look at each one of these very briefly. First of all, we see that Jesus is called the Wonderful Counselor. And we've already talked about one of the reasons why Jesus is wonderful. It's because he is truly God and truly man. Who has ever existed in the history of the world that fits that description? No one but Jesus alone. So his person is a wonder. But second of all, his work is wonderful as well, isn't it? Because what does Jesus say he came to do? Jesus says, I came to reveal the Father. You see me, you see the Father. I'm revealing him to you. And I've come not to speak of my own authority, but to make known what has been given to me. I'm making known to you the Father's will. What is more wonderful than that? The Father's will being made known to us. So Jesus is wonderful in his person. He's wonderful in his work. And he's wonderful in his relationship with us, brothers and sisters. Because here's the reality. Ever since we first listened to Satan as our counselor back in the garden, our wisdom is characterized as a lack of wisdom, of no wisdom. On the wisdom scale, we are foolish 
it's like we're stumbling around confused in the darkness. You ever get up your house and try to walk around and navigate it when it's really dark and you can't see? Your toes have probably scars and stuff from smacking them, right? Nothing hurts worse than that. You're, you're confused. You're in the dark. You're stumbling around. That's our situation without a wonderful counselor coming alongside of us and showing us the way, shining the light, making truth and wisdom known to us. And see, here's the thing. Jesus, as the Son of God, is not simply wise. As the Son of God, He is wisdom itself. You understand this, right? There's not some category of wisdom outside of God by which you judge God to decide whether or not what He's doing and who He is is wise. No, God is that standard. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are wisdom. And that's why we're told in places like 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Or in Colossians 2 verse 3, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so Jesus is wisdom for us in the midst of our foolishness, making it known to us, guiding us, directing us. And so... Where else are we to go for counsel, brothers and sisters, but his word? Because who counsels God? No one. He doesn't need counsel from anyone. But we are in desperate need of counsel. And so here is Jesus as our mediator, saying, I will be your wonderful counselor. And Francis Turretin in his systematic theology, and I'll keep pointing these out as we go through them, he says that each of these offices show us how Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And here we see as our wonderful counselor, Jesus is our prophet. He makes the word of God known to us because he is the word of God. And so he is a sufficient mediator for us. We are foolish, but he is wise. Second of all, you'll see that he's called mighty God. Again, if Isaiah hasn't already been clear enough that this child who's born, this son who is given, will be divine, this should clear things up. He will be mighty God. He is one with the Father and with the Spirit. He is divine. And so therefore, He is power. He is more powerful than anyone else. And so it's fitting that we have God Almighty coming in the flesh. Why? To accomplish for us that which we cannot accomplish for ourselves. He brings about a mighty salvation. We cannot ascend to Him. We are weak and powerless to do so ever since the fall. And so what does he do instead? He condescends to us. He comes as Emmanuel, the mighty God who alone can accomplish our salvation in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so he comes then as God when we are weak, but he is powerful. Thirdly, we see that he is called Everlasting Father. And I actually got a question about this this morning. And I was anticipating the question. It's always nice when you're able to do that in a sermon. Anticipate the questions that people are going to ask. And this is probably the most difficult for us because when we hear everlasting father, we think, oh no, Isaiah is screwing up the Trinity. He just called the son, the second person of the Trinity, the father, the first person of the Trinity. Oh no, no, that's not what Isaiah is doing. Just to clarify any confusion there. He's not talking about the inner Trinitarian relationships between the Father and the Son. He's, no, he's not talking about that relationship. He's talking about the Son's relationship to his people when he describes him as Father here. 
In other words, I'm learning this the longer that I am a father. I think the very essence of fatherhood is putting the needs and cares and concerns of others above yourself. Not saying I'm very good at that, but I am learning that that's the very essence of fatherhood. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us, has he not, brothers and sisters? He saw us like sheep without a shepherd. The Father gave us to him, and Jesus came and laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for his friends. And here's the incredible thing. Jesus is not just this loving Father in our relationship, the one who has given us life. The one who cares for us and protects us and walks with us through all of life. He's not like our temporal fathers. We all have fathers. Whether you knew him or not, you have a father. Whether he was good or bad or indifferent, you had a father. And the reality is that eventually that ends, doesn't it? Because all of our fathers eventually die. And so we don't have that care and concern if we did have it in our relationship with our fathers. But what's being said about Jesus is that he is everlasting father. Everlastingly, he has this relationship with us. Why? Because he is eternally love. He doesn't start loving at some point. He has eternally loved us. And so it never has a beginning and it will never have an end. And so we can know that we will be cared for and loved. That's why Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you, how? As orphans. Though I leave you, I'm not going to leave you as orphans because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and through his indwelling, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so whereas we are time bound and temporal and our love is fickle, his love is eternal because he is eternally loved. And what we see there is how he is our priest. As our wonderful counselor, he's our prophet. As everlasting father, he's our priest, sacrificing himself for us, representing us before the father. And then, fourthly, we see that he is the prince of peace. He is our king. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And we see that not just in the title prince of peace, but then look at verse 7 with me. Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the type of king, the prince of peace that Jesus is, is he's the promised son to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember the Lord promised to David, I will give you a son who will sit on your throne forever. And what Isaiah is telling us is that Jesus is that greater son of David. He is this promised king. And what do good earthly kings try to do? They try to establish peace. That's what good kings do. And maybe they can establish it, but man, it sure is hard to preserve it, isn't it? That's why we continue to have wars And even a good king, if he's able to establish it and preserve it, it eventually ends when he dies. But here's the thing about Jesus. Because he's eternally king, he is not only able to establish peace, but then he is able to preserve it forever. And what kind of peace do we need? Well, see, we're in a relationship of hostility both with God and with one another, aren't we? In our fallen state, 
in Adam. And so Jesus comes and he brings peace where there's war, first of all, between us and God. We are objects of God's wrath and we hate God in our fallen state. And yet he comes and takes on flesh and lives the perfect life we failed to, fulfills all righteousness, and that righteousness is then accounted as our own. And then Jesus dies on the cross, taking the wrath of God for our sins upon himself. So that wrath is expiated, it's satisfied. And then he raises from the dead and represents us before the Father so that where there was once warfare, there is now peace between us and God. But then that's not all. We also then have peace with each other because when Jesus regenerates our hearts by sending the Holy Spirit, he pours the love of the Father into our hearts. And we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So now as believers... Whereas we hated each other and looked down on each other and the differences between us divided us, now we love each other. Our hearts are filled with love for one another. I'm not saying perfectly, but it's real, true, abiding love that the Spirit has wrought in our hearts. And so this is the kingdom of peace that Jesus has brought in His church. And it will continue to grow as unbelievers are brought in and converted and united to Jesus. And so this is the king that the Son has given to us who establishes this peace and then preserves it into eternity. And what just blows my mind, I hope it blows your mind this morning. Do you see how all of the realities of the new covenant in Jesus are laid out for us here in types and shadows in Isaiah chapter 9? That we are expecting the arrival of a son who is truly God and truly man, who is our prophet, priest, and king as our mediator, the only one who can accomplish our salvation, the only one who is worthy of our faith and our hope and our trust. And here's the thing. We can know that God will keep all of his promises. And Isaiah wants to make this abundantly clear, not just by putting these verses in the present tense, but then did you also notice the very end of verse 7? Isaiah 9, verse 7, the very end, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How can we know, how could the old covenant saints know that the Lord would bring about everything that he promised, the way that he said it would happen? Because the zeal of the Lord would do it. Who's greater than the Lord? Who can stay his hand and say, no, no, don't do that? Who can thwart his will? Who can stop his eternal decree from being realized in time and space and history? Nobody can. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish these things. And so now we in the new covenant can know the zeal of the Lord will bring Jesus back. And he will establish his kingdom forever and ever, fully and finally. He inaugurated it in his first coming. But we will see the fullness of it when he comes back again. And so here's the question then, where is your hope this morning? Is this where your hope is? To put your hope anywhere else is foolish. Because any other place that you set your hope will fail you necessarily. And so put your hope, brothers and sisters, place your hope. May it be nurtured as we look at this passage. May you be refocused if your hope is shifted elsewhere. Look not to yourself, look not to others. Look not to politicians, world leaders. Look to your triune God who has shown you such incredible grace and mercy and power. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that great day when we're able to sing together a song that we're going to sing in just a little bit. No more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that in and of ourselves, we are in darkness, we are foolish, we are weak, we are unruly, we do not submit ourselves to you, but rather we go our own way. And so we're thankful that you've sent the Son to be given, second person of the Trinity, to be born as a child, assuming a human nature, to be the light of the world so that our eyes could be opened, and that we might rest in him as our prophet, our priest, our king, that we might know him as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We pray that that is where our hope would be placed in you and in you alone so that we can do whatever it is that you've called us to do in this life, not putting our hope anywhere, but in your word and what you've promised to do and how you will do it. Use your word, we pray, to that end, for we know that it's not by might or by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.